and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was the Raspberries and Play On from their starting over LP. The Raspberries, a key act in the American power pop scene of the 1970s, and we are covering the uh, Looking for the Magic set, which covers American power pop in the 70s, which is on the Grapefruit Cherry Red imprint. As always, I've got the compiler of that wonderful set, David Wells, here. A huge welcome, David. Hi, Jason. Thank you. So we're going into the 70s with uh, American power pop. Maybe introduce the concept of power pop and, and where this all fits in. Yeah, power pop. The term was first coined, I think, in 1967 by Pete Townsend, but it wasn't really, didn't really catch on until the late 70s when um, it started to be used in America to describe a particular sound which was rooted in the 60s, basically an update of those mid-60s tracks, you know, the Kinks, the Who, the Raspberries. Beach Boys, all those classic bands, but with like 70s studio sound added. And and really, the Raspberries, even though they were kind of between about 71, 72, 73, 74, they'd kind of gone by the time that, that the phrase power pop was, was in general use. They are kind of seen as, as the antecedents of, of that sound, sort of the aggressiveness of the Who, Beach Boys harmonies, maybe 12-string Rickenbacker, as used by George Harrison, also Roger McGuinn, of course. But also a strong grasp of melody, in the same way as mid-60s bands did have, you know, the Beatles, Easy Beats, Small Faces, all those kind of bands that had a slight edge to their music, but also employed harmonies, etc. So, yeah, basically what power pop is, and uh, as you say, the Raspberries are considered to be almost... Almost like the, the starting point for a lot of it in terms of the 70s, though. Obviously, you have bands like Badfinger as well. And yeah, the idea of this set really was to trace that development throughout the 70s to the end of the 70s. And, and to be honest, after the 70s, I still like a lot of power pop records that were made after then, but it does become a slightly generic sound. You get bands forming to make power pop records, which wasn't the case at the time. So yeah, we, we started with the Raspberries play on from. Uh, their final album, uh, the ironically titled Starting Over, which came out in 74. But after that, um, Eric Carmen left and uh, began a solo career. Because this track also features the latter-day bassist Scott McCall. Yeah, they have one or two personnel changes before the fourth album. Uh, they recruited a couple of, uh, of new members alongside Wally Bryson and Eric Carmen. One of them was uh, Scott McCall, who had just sent a demo tape of his songs to Derek Carmen, and he liked them so much that he invited Scott to join the band. And Play On it features Scott on lead vocals, and it's co-written by him and Eric Carmen. So we next have Blue Ash and uh, Abracadabra, Have You Seen Her? So I wasn't familiar with this group. Who were Blue Ash? Yeah, Blue Ash were based in Ohio, a bit like the Raspers, actually. Um, but that's just coincidental, I think. They formed in 69, but they didn't do that kind of guitar jamming that was so popular at the time. They took their inspiration from what they considered to be bands from the British Invasion, you know, the Beatles, Stones, Kinks, etc., The Who as well. Abracadabra, have you seen? That kind of mixes in a bit of a slade as well, but um, it wasn't a hit at the time, but it was a few years later, it was covered by the records, English power pop band. Uh, and I think from then on, it had a, a wider feel to become part of that kind of power pop antecedents almost. They did an album which was extremely good at the time but Abracadabra is their, their three minutes of near fame 
Um, yeah, great song. And uh, as I say, it's a bit of a shame that it was a cover version that eventually introduced the song to a new audience. the raspberries earlier and, and now we've got another one of those key bands that are now associated with the uh, power pop genre and that's big star when my baby's beside me so this was unreleased alternate mix of their single this was a slightly earlier version in the studio it's only uh, it hasn't got the second guitar on it and i think it doesn't have the double tracked alex chilton vocal i think it's just a single track so yeah it's a slightly different um view on an old favourite as far as power pop uh, fans are concerned as I put in the sleep notes describing Big Star as a power pop band is a, a bit insulting really uh, it's a bit like referring to the Beatles as a beat group uh, it was far beyond like uh, just a, a genre band they're one of those bands that have gone from so much obscurity to being like a, a staple name really for, for compilations and um, 
Spotify listings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, yeah, obviously Alex Chilton and uh, Chris Bell were the main members. Chilton was known because of the box tops, and uh, this is, like I say, an alternative version of their first single. Flaming Groovies, You Tore Me Down. So this was a version that was recorded in the UK, was it? That's right, yeah. they uh, By the early 70s, they struggled to get a new deal uh, in America and uh, in frustration almost wrote to the British branch of um, United Artists who took them on, a guy called Andrew Lauder who, went, who was head of A&R at UA, 
Yeah, so Roy, Roy Lane had just left the band at that point, who was their original lead singer. So Cyril Jordan took over. Jordan was more of a kind of mid-60s British invasion type guy. And uh, with, with um, the young Chris Wilson coming in on, on, on lead vocals, they developed a more retrospective sound, I think. This was produced by uh, Dave Edmonds at Rockfield in Wales. And they wanted this to, to be the single at the time, but uh, the United Artists Managing Director said that it wasn't commercial enough. So it was recorded May 72. It came out in December 74 after Greg Shaw, who obviously ran the Who Put the Bomp fanzine, had just started his own Bomp label. And um, this was the first release on Bomp. This song saw a release on Sire, didn't it? That's right, yes. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where nobody kind of claimed ownership of it other than the band. So they, the band um, included it when they made their first album for Sire. Obviously, those were more innocent days in a way. idea of a band just being told, oh, yeah, you can have that. It's obviously rooted in the past, I'm afraid. got Tim Moore and Rock and Roll Love Letter and I think I've heard this before through the Bay City Rollers, is that right? Bay City Rollers had a minor hit in America with it and once again it was covered by the records in the late 70s 
on their, their free 12-inch EP with their, their first album. Yeah, Tim Moore, he's um, a good songwriter. His songs are covered by the likes of Clifford T. Ward as well. And he'd been in uh, a band with Daryl Hall, a pretty Hall and Oates band called Gulliver. Um, he'd also played uh, in Todd Rundgren's early band, uh, With His Truck Stop. But uh, this was a single that came out in England at the time. Got quite a fair amount of play on, on Radio 1. I remember it when I was a teenager and I went out and bought it. Um, I always loved the song right from the first time. And like I say, it was uh, it was covered and uh, quite extensively, in fact. There's a nice version by the Scratch Band, uh, as we said, the records and basically roles as well. But this is a, a great song to me, and it's about like the, the life-affirming powers of, of key pop music, and really this should be hailed as a classic. So it's nice to get the rights to use this on the compilation. I mean, that that's it's, it's um, always fun to include things like... Um, the Raspberries and Big Star and some of the bigger names like that in the power pop firmament but uh, Rock and Roll Love Letter isn't as well known as it should be Tim Moore went on to um, write more songs and uh, worked with quite a lot of artists as well as other artists continuing to cover other songs of his he did but he also made some uh, strong solo albums as well there were things which it's always difficult to know as a, as somebody growing up in England how these people were received in America but certainly his mid-70s stuff like a fool like you and in the middle were played a lot at the time. For some reason, he just didn't get that hit record over here. But he's been involved with um, a lot of different acts um, over the years.
Another group often associated with Power Pop, and this time it's Cheap Trick with uh, Oh Candy. So this was from the very early days? This is their first single. It's also an alternative version of a track that was on their first album. They remixed it for a single. Uh, additional hand claps, slightly different vocal, etc., etc. But it wasn't really... When you're starting out, when you put your first single out, you either get lucky or you get unlucky, and um, it wasn't for another year or so that they really broke through. Uh, it became big in Japan, to coin a phrase. But uh, yeah, this was their first single, and um, it's actually quite a, a sober story about the suicide of, of, of a band's friend, uh, photographer, a guy called Marshall Mintz. They knew enough not to not include that in the song title, so they, they made it into a song that appears to be about a girl, a love interest, if you like. But uh, yeah, it wasn't successful at the time, but it is a, a really strong opening single, I think. Should have called me 
the shoes and boys don't lie so this was was this an independent release originally yeah they'd made a couple of independent albums before this but this was their first real attempt at making a coherent album and one that they thought might give them a career of sorts so yeah they they put this out pressed a thousand copies and sent it to people they thought would be uh, amenable to their sound people like trouser press magazine was quite important in covering those kind of anglophile leaning bands and obviously Greg Shaw's who put the bomb as well and yeah there was a there was a buzz about black vinyl shoes and it did eventually lead to them getting a few offers from from uh, record companies including Sire but they eventually went with uh, Electra made three fantastic albums for, uh, for Electra I get cold, I get To the pop walk in the rain so they were a LA based weren't they? They were an LA band um, yeah uh, David Swanson also helped out Sparks when they returned to LA and uh, trying to resuscitate their career. Yeah again this is an album that I bought at the time and it came out it was initially an independent release and then it was picked up by Arista and they put out two or three uh, good singles uh, as well as this album it was covered over here I think um by Sounds Music Magazine Weekly, and I was sufficiently moved to go out. And in those days, when you had to rely on the papers like NME and Sounds to to point you in the right direction, because there was nothing played on the radio like this, and uh, I picked up the album on that basis. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a slightly mixed bag, but side one of it is fabulous, and uh, yeah, it's definitely well worth picking up. And then then signed with Arista and uh, permanently, and and put out a new album that was produced by former Scott, uh, Sparks guy or Mankey. But I think this is their finest uh, work, the first album, and this is one of the best songs on it. Mm-hmm. 
Sneakers, Decline and False. This was um, Mitch Easter's group. That's right, Mitch Easter and uh, Chris Stamey. Yeah, they had a whole kind of prehistory uh, before this. They'd been high school friends together. Also, Peter Holes Apple. It's amazing to think that these three lads, literally 15 years old, um, would go on to be so successful individually. Obviously, Peter Holes Apple uh, went on to play with REM. And uh, Mitch Easter went on to produce R.E.M. as well. Uh, Stamey played with um, Alex Chilton before forming the DBs. So there's all this kind of uh, lineage, um, these, these uh, interlinks. But uh, Sneakers album, again, a mini album that I picked up at the time. And to me, this was the strongest song on it. Two or three of the songs on there were kind of like snatches of ideas, almost humorous things. But this is a fully fledged kind of power masterpiece as far as I'm concerned.
Often seen uh, squarely in the power pop mold, the cars and my girl's best friend. So, where was this in terms of the cars catalogue? This is from the first album. I mean, they did have a power pop sound, obviously, but it was kind of sleeker and more sophisticated than most of those power pop bands to the point where now I don't know. Um, I've always felt that power pop is kind of a phrase used by journalists for unsuccessful pop groups. So, unlike so, the cars unlike the cars that's right so they're kind of like hovering on the edges almost and the same with Tom Petty there's very little difference in my opinion between the first Tom Petty album and the first Dwight Twilley album but Tom Petty went on to be like a, a classic American rock artist and Dwight Twilley was kind of on the margins even though he had a couple of hits and so one of them is, is dubbed power pop and the other one is, is classic rock or Americana or whatever you want to call it and I think the cars fit a little bit into that category. They're basically power pop in a way that, say, Blondie were power pop as well. But they also became successful. And they obviously had Queen producer Roy Thomas Baker producing them as well, which gave them a bigger, more expansive sound. But like I say, at heart, they are like a three-minute power pop group. My Best Friend's Girl was also a hit on the, on this side of the pond in the UK. Yeah, they had three hits in America. My Best Friend's Girl was was something that was marketed over here as the first commercially available picture disc. And that sounds like nothing now. 
But back in 78, there's all the gimmicks of, of coloured vinyl, etc., etc. And the first picture disc, people went out and bought it on that basis. I'm not even sure. They just, just wanted to see it spinning around on their record player. So I'm not quite sure that it was actually about the song itself. I think it was more of a, a kind of clever marketing ploy. But it is a good song, obviously.
and you mentioned Blondie briefly earlier. Again, we've got Gary Valentine, uh, the first one, which uh, obviously very strong uh, Blondie connections here. Yeah, he'd uh, he'd just left um, Blondie after giving them a new song he'd written, I'm Always Touched by Your Presence, Dear, which was a top ten hit over here. He'd also written the debut single, Ex Offender. But he left just as they were about to record Plastic Letters, which, of course, was the one that uh, uh, really sort of... Uh, made their name in, in, in the UK. Anyway, he uh, he made this solo single with, obviously, that Blondie had played CBGB's on uh, many occasions. And on this track, he's backed by another CBGB's band called The Mumps. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, something he... Uh, it was an independent release. I was able to get in touch with Gary, and he was kind enough to let us use it. And, yeah, another another very good song that just didn't really... When you have an independent release... It just uh, didn't have the marketing behind it to become a hit. Gary Valentine, who was in Blondie, known for their love of 60s pop. And we, we go to the Ramones on a different version of punk and, and 60s pop with I Want to Be Sedated. Yeah, as I've tried to get across in the sleeve notes, Ramones kind of fit in every category almost. You know, you could see mainly punk, but the impact on heavy metal, that wall of sound, that, a wall of noise sound that they had, very frantic, um, fast-paced thing. And uh, 
influenced New Wave and, and the power pop bands as well. So I want to be sedated to me, just cuts across every genre. A great song, apparently written when Joey was stuck in a London hotel room over Christmas when, you know, he was probably shocked to find that in England in the late 70s, everything closed down for Christmas. So he was just stuck in a hotel room doing nothing but watching old, old Hollywood movies. And this was a song about how bored he felt. Get me to the airport before I go loco. Uh, so, yeah. so, so it's interesting how something something fantastic can come out of uh, a situation where you're really bored and listless. Segarini uh, got to have pop. So this was a uh, Bob Segarini. Bob Segarini, yeah, he'd been in the Whackers, who were also on this um, compilation. He'd been in the Family Tree before then in the sixties, who had an association with his friend Nielsen. He kept going and going and going. Sadly, very sadly, he died while we were making this compilation. So I've kind of dedicated the the release to him. He was one of those people who was always kind of concerned with like uh, making three minute pop songs as opposed to like the 10 minute um, song suites of the late 60s, early 70s, anything, anything like that. And Gotta Have Pop is his kind of mission statement, really. And a famous opening line, I love Beatles up to Sergeant Pepper, then they ruined pop for what could be forever. So yeah, this is uh, about his love of three minute radio friendly pop songs. Just a classic song, which bizarrely didn't come out in America at the time. He, he 
moved over to Canada, came out in Canada, and it came out in England, and I think one or two European countries as well. But it wasn't released in America. Twenty twenty next. So, what was the link with the knack? Well, allegedly, um, they were friends with Dwight Twilley and his cohort Phil Seymour in Tulsa. They'd gone to rival high schools. They moved to Los Angeles, um, and they started playing live under the name Twenty Twenty. And at that point, Doug Fever put together the Knack. 
but they weren't called the NAC at that point. They were called 2020. And because because of the uh, ex-Tulsa band starting to build a little bit of a reputation, while well, the other 2020s were still unknown, they decided to go a bit off having another name, and they called themselves the NAC, which I assume is after the uh, the mid-60s swinging London film, The NAC and How to Get It. It might not be. Yeah, so 2020... Um, Again, worked with Earl Mankey, the ex-original Sparks guy, and uh, Sherry was issued as the first album's lead single. And ironically, it's <laughs> when Billboard reviewed it, they said it would draw comparisons to The Knack, who by that time were massive. So uh, unfortunate um, case of being a little bit late to get your first record out and being bypassed by the band who were kind of like uh, behind you a year earlier.
Cheese, she said something. Was this one on a independent or minor label, this one? Yeah, this is something that they put out themselves, the band. I mean, obviously there are independent labels and independent labels. When we talk about, say, Stiff or Chiswick, those are quite big independent labels. I mean, we're talking here about the band making up the name of a label and, and pressing it themselves. So, yeah, this was genuinely independent and... Uh, they made 750 copies, which seems a weird number to me, and they sold it uh, via an ad in, in the Trouser Press magazine, which they thought would probably appeal to the uh, the readership of that magazine. And yeah, one of those things that is generally unknown and deserves a wider audience. Again, one of the reasons for doing a compilation of this nature. It certainly holds its own amongst the more well-known material. I think it's great, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things you listen to and think, how was that not a hit? But of course, if, if you make your own record and press 750 copies, you've got to rely on a major label picking it up, and they didn't really go down that route.
had 2020 earlier, and now we've got the knack. Your number or your name. This is a band that were almost too successful at the start and it worked against them. Yeah, there was that famous Nuke the Knack campaign when people got sick of the, the hype around them. Capital had signed them and obviously they had the Beatles in America as well and they pushed this new Beatles campaign and Doug Feger was a slightly difficult interviewee as well. They were everywhere for a while. Yeah, I mean, the the, the album topped Billboard for, for a month. My Sharona was the biggest selling single in 1979 in America. Over here, they were fairly successful, but not massive. But um, they were they were too big for their own good for a while in America. And uh, there was a backlash or a knacklash, as they called it at the time. And kind of there's a bit of sexism in their, their lyrics as well. But other bands got away with that stuff, and, and yet they didn't. So, yeah, My Sharona is well known. Um, but um, your number, your name is another classic kind of uh, update of the mid-60s sound. And like I say, it's nice to, to use something that is less well-known than than some a single that's, that's I'd say, top of the charts for weeks on end in America.
finish, David, with uh, the title track of the set, Looking for the Magic, and we have Dwight Tillyband. And we've mentioned Dwight before, so where does he fit into this all? He was one of the guys who had been around for several years, recorded with his best friend, Phil Seymour, and then they were signed by Shelter Records. Actually, Danny Cordell, who'd been behind bands like Coco uh, Harlem's A Wider Shade of Pale and uh, The Move as well. By then, they'd moved to America. Uh, they were initially called Oyster. Uh, he renamed them Dwight Twilly Band, which obviously Dwight Twilly must have liked, but Phil Seymour wasn't so keen on. So they had they had a kind of um, unexpected big hit in 75 with their first single, I'm on Fire, which I think Bands Like Shoes said, you know, gave them almost a lifeline in terms of what they were doing, that there was a market for that stuff, that kind of um, muscular mid-70s update of the mid-60s pop sound. But then they, there was kind of issues with their record company, Shelter. The album came out late. And then the um, second album, Twilly Don't Mind, at that point he, he was recording with uh, Tom Petty and Tom Petty was backing him as well and they were playing a lot together. But Tom Petty's career took off and um, Dwight Twilly's didn't really. Looking for the magic, partly I used this track because I did recall the compilation by that name. But uh, you, can, you can't go wrong with anything from the early Dwight Twilly albums. You know, you can pick anything out of the, out of the track listing and, and it's a classic three-minute power pop song. And he was still releasing material about a decade ago and uh, his album in that period also featured Mitch Easter, so it all comes around. Yeah, that's right. It is almost like like-minded souls will come together. And I think that's kind of what is um, one of the endearing things about Power Pop, how you see these names cropping up time and time again. You know, Mitch Easter especially is like the uh, the Zedig figure of, of, of Power Pop. Yeah, so that, that's partly the attraction. But uh, like I say, his songs are fantastically commercial. And as I said earlier, um, it seems to be simply the fact that he's labelled Power Pop and other more successful bands aren't simply because they were successful. The, the sound is very similar. So yeah, this is kind of uh, an obvious uh, closer and it seems a good way to end it. As always with these sets, David, the mixture of uh, bands and, and tracks that many of us are familiar with alongside some of the rarer stuff as, as we've featured today, they all stand on a, a similar footing and work really well together. So uh, another great set. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that is partly the appeal. As I've said, doing a, a Power Pop's greatest hits isn't really that appealing after this at this late stage of the game. So I did try to mix it up with um, names that people wouldn't expect, maybe like Blue Oyster Cult and Don't Fear the Reaper, one or two other things. So there is, uh, as well as all the obscure bands like Cheese, and obviously Gary Valentine isn't really well known, and despite his contribution to Blondie. And there, there's a few others as well where you think, how how did that go unissued at the time? So that was really the appeal of doing something like this. As I said, it's three CDs, four hours long, so there's plenty to enjoy in it, I think.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.